Welcome to Double Take. I'm Les Sillers. Dear Juliana, first off, I think you have a very beautiful name. My name is Chad Skipper. I am an inmate at Menard Prison. This is Juliana Chan Erickson reading a letter she received last year from Chad. Menard Prison is in Illinois. My friend has signed me up as a free member on several different pen pal websites. Your name struck me for some reason, so I decided to write to you. In 2016, Juliana was working on a magazine feature about loneliness. I just thought I want to contact prisoners because I feel like they're the loneliest people I could think of and they have time on their hands. So I reached out to, I don't know, one of these websites like prisonpenpals.com. She found a couple of inmates willing to correspond with her, wrote the article, and thought that was that. Then, in 2020... I got a letter in the mail from a guy named Chad, who I had not written to, and somehow found my address. And I think that's kind of scary because I'm like, is my address floating somewhere in Menard Prison? <laughs> <laughs> like the prison, prisoners are exchanging addresses of women in they're willing to write to them. So I got this letter from Chad Skipper. He apparently was convicted of aggravated kidnapping in... So did you know what aggravated kidnapping was? No, no. I know I know what kidnapping is, but I don't know what aggravated kidnapping is. But she found the letter quite charming. So Juliana wrote back, and they started to correspond. What did, I mean, what did your family and friends say when they heard that you were writing to this guy? Oh, I mean, they, they were very against this. They were, they were not in favor. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, most of my friends were like, get a P.O. box and don't give him personal information. They were really worried that I would engage with them and then they would fall in love with me and that I would send them money and gifts and then they would spring out of jail and hunt me down and kill me. <laughs> and I'm like, for what? Chad talked a lot about his family. I mean, some of the stuff is really personal. I mean, he's, he's married and um, he, they have six kids and his wife homeschools the kids. I mean, he, and he, he adores his wife. She found his letters funny and interesting and sometimes quite touching. So she kept writing, and he kept writing back. Here's Juliana reading more excerpts. Hey there, little lady. I was so excited to get your letter. I'm glad But love, are. true love is not a feeling. It's a choice. You choose to So love. my first night ever in jail, I sit there phone in hand, arm in a sling, waiting for my wife to pick up. Waiting and waiting until... But for future reference, probably don't lick your letters before sending them to me. If you watch Seinfeld, you will know what I'm talking about. When the light was out, it was pitch black. I would have died in that cell that night. I truly... My Sally, who isn't so bright, just let them pull two more of his teeth. I think he has three left. So much has happened, so strap in for this one. First of all, the judge ruled against me on visitation with my children. She said due to the nature... He seemed like a sincere Christian. He goes on to say, God has the power to rescue me from this prison, but even if he doesn't, I will still serve him. And so it got to the point where you could actually imagine like going to the same church with this guy. Yes, you know. yes. I, I totally could because, I mean, he's got kids, I have kids, and we would probably chat about whatever. But eventually, Juliana did what any prison pen pal in her right mind should have done at the beginning. I googled him, and that's when I realized Chad was not what he seemed. Is anybody really what they seem? Juliana ended that relationship safely. 
And in researching Chad, she found a couple who learned the exact same lesson she had learned, only they learned it the hard way. That's today on Double Take. Here's Juliana. I'm a city girl who lives in a high-rise condo where space is measured in square feet. Larry and Connie Van Oosten, however, measure their space in acres. They have a farm near Erie, Illinois. It's near where Chad grew up. A little nervous. Don't even know if I've arrived at the right place, but we're going to find out. They have 70 acres with a farmhouse, a pool, and a workshop. A few storage sheds, grassland, and lots of empty space. It's February when I visit, and today their teenage grandkids have taken a motorized cart to the edge of their property with hunting rifles. There aren't many trees nearby, so you can see a long way. They welcome me inside their farmhouse. Nice to meet you, finally. You you too, you too. (laughs) Connie and Larry live on the outskirts of town. In Erie, everybody knows everybody. I'm Connie Van Houston. Hi, I'm Larry Van Houston. Connie grew up near Chicago. After they married, they moved west to the countryside. Uh, We have, you know, a couple restaurants and gas station, grocery store uh, that, that, uh, you know, kind of keep things going. No stoplights. No stoplights. (laughs) The couple raised two kids. Larry ran a pest control business, and Connie did sales for a flooring company. Years passed. Their kids married and had kids of their own, and the Van Oostens retired. Now their grandparents, who still enjoy a good laugh, mowing the lawn, helping neighbors, and hanging out with the grandkids. Larry says he likes the remote life. Our location is somewhat isolated. We have a a neighbor across the road, and no one really that close. I've lived in this area most of my life. It's a place that we both thoroughly enjoy, that we feel safe and secure. Soon after I arrived, the Van Oostens took me to the second floor to see their master bedroom. The bed is right in the middle, decorated with matching pillows. It looks modern. It's where they still sleep. And that surprised me, because it's the scene of a nightmare. A nightmare that began in the early morning hours of February 7th, 2017. I was here asleep, thought I was really dreaming because I kind of felt a presence in the room and I looked up. At around seven in the morning, Larry opens his eyes and sees a man standing by the side of the bed, dressed in all black. Black face covering, black sunglasses, black ball cap, black gloves, black pants. And that's when he realizes this is no dream. I woke up and then when I finally figured out this is something different. I I yelled. That wakes up Connie. But before either has time to react, the strange man pulls out a weapon and aims it at Larry. He's no more than five feet away. He can hardly miss. So somehow he moved from just over a few feet and then shot the taser at me. He misses. I thought I was shot. I mean, I had never been around one of those things before, and it does have a flash and a bang. The man tells him in a flat voice, Lay down on the bed. Don't look at me. The man speaks calmly, as if he'd done this before. Lay face down, he says. Even though the taser missed, the man's presence and his commands are startling enough for Connie to call out to God. 
my words to him were, were well, it was a prayer of sorts, you know, Lord, please help us. Please help us. The man's response sends chills down their spines. And that's when he said, where's your God now? The man sounded weird. Larry and Connie later realized that he has a voice modulation device strapped onto his neck. It gives his voice a less-than-human texture, kind of gravelly. Larry tries to talk to the man, telling him that God is present. God can help you, and it doesn't have to be this way. We have a God who can forgive, he pleads. The man is curt. Stop talking, he says. He then hands Connie a pair of handcuffs and tells her to cuff her husband. This time, he was pointing a semi-automatic handgun instead of a taser. The cuffs don't fit, so he pulls out a larger pair. Then the man cuffs Connie. And then he put duct tape over our eyes and mouths and said, don't, you know, just stay there. Don't move. It crosses Larry's mind to rush the guy, tackle him. Even if he has a gun, even if he gets killed, Connie might get away. But he hesitates. That's one thing that hurts me more than anything, that I somehow I didn't. You know, I tried. I, well, we thought of ways that we could. Uh, one of those, she left the handcuffs loose one time, but then after that, he never, I never saw him. I never got close to you after that, but, but the way he was dressed and kind of the, the way he was acting, we had no clue who it was. I mean, this, he looked like a terrorist. Handcuffed with duct tape over their eyes and lying face down on their bed, the Venusans keep thinking, we're going to die right here. It, it did seem pretty hopeless, especially when he says lay face down on the bed. We felt that had to be the end. I mean, that, that was it. But then he leaves the room. Larry manages to loosen the tape over his mouth a little. Then he tells Connie the only thing he could think of to do. He said, are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Connie and Larry are longtime Christians. He means, are you ready to meet Jesus? And he said, I'm going to pray now. And that's when we prayed. Half an hour later, the man comes back. But instead of shooting them, he uncuffs Connie. At one point, when he finally came back upstairs, he took me, left. Larry here, and um, took me downstairs, again, gunpoint, took the tape off my eyes and mouth, and then took me down to the office. And then I was to give him account numbers and all that kind of things. He gives her a pad of paper and a pen. Connie is still frightened, but quickly realizes what this was all about. It's a robbery. He wants to clean out their bank accounts. She writes down the numbers. And then he had me clean up, he'd carried or he had tracked in mud. So Connie gets on her hands and knees, and with her own cleaning supplies, she removes any trace that their kidnapper was ever there. Footprints, fingerprints, everything she can find. Then the intruder brings Larry downstairs. He tapes up Connie again and orders both of them into the trunk of a Chevy Caprice. Still handcuffed, but at least they're together again, and alive. It yeah. was an old car. <laughs> it was a little rusty, and yeah, there was uh, light and dust coming in. Yeah, so. and fumes. <laughs> and cold air. 
For the next 30 minutes or so, the car navigates long rural roads. The Van Oostens know the countryside, a winter landscape of fallow farmland, red silos and large farm irrigators sitting idle, waiting for spring. But all they hear is the drone of the caprice. Occasionally, another car breezes by in the other direction. This goes on for miles. They slow down for what they guess is a small town, then speed back up, cruising past the farmland and silos. You lay there and you think, okay, is he turning? Is he, you know, how far are we away? We had no idea where he, where he took us at that point. The car finally stops in front of a house. The man pulls them out of the trunk and directs them inside. It's mid-morning by now and the sun's up. And I could see a little bit below my tape over my eyes. And it was very bright. I felt, well, lots of windows, at least. He walks them into a closet where he lifts one of the squares of carpet. Under that is a hardwood floor with a padlock trap door. He unlocks that and makes them climb down a metal ladder into a windowless basement. He loops their handcuffs through a couple of metal handles attached to one wall. We had to stand there along the wall, handcuffed to this, this barn door handle. On the floor beside them are lots of snacks, neatly stacked. Dozens of containers of single-serve pudding and applesauce, a big container of peanuts, packs of ramen noodles, a jug of water. There's a TV, as well as books and DVDs, also neatly stacked. Whoever had been here before was clearly a fan of Smallville, the Dukes of Hazard, and Home Improvement. There's also a mattress on the floor fitted with matching bed sheets and pillowcases. All of it has the makings of a storm shelter, except for the handcuffs, which are five feet off the floor. So the two had to stand, which they did for a while. Um, at some point, it just got so hard to stand that actually I just hung on the using the cuffs to just hold me up because I couldn't stand any longer. And like I say, he left us like that for, for a long time, a long time. Eventually, the man comes back and brings Connie out briefly. He gives her her phone and tells her to call anyone expecting to see her today. So she calls her daughter Amy and explains that they won't be catching their grandson's basketball game that night. She makes other calls to her 89-year-old mother-in-law, a hairstylist, and a carpet layer. As the evening approaches, the man uncuffs Connie again and directs her to unlock Larry's cuffs. He tells him to leave the key on the stack of books. The two of them lay on the mattress and settle in for one long, restless night. The next morning, the intruder's voice comes over a speaker in the basement. Put the cuffs on. They do. He climbs down the ladder into the basement, then directs Connie upstairs. Being kidnapped has taken a physical toll on Connie. She has not eaten, slept, or calmed down. Once Connie gets up, she immediately passes out. After she comes to, she manages to climb up the ladder. The man gives her an oversized winter coat and a handbag. He tells her to lie down in the backseat of the Caprice. He drives to a first savings and trust bank in Albany a town alongside the Mississippi River. This time, her captor is wearing a wig, ball cap, and sunglasses. When they get there, he orders her to go into the bank and withdraw $350,000 from her account in the form of a check made out to a company called Store Edge LLC. 
The modulator gives his voice a menacing edge. Again, he, he said, do not look at me. Keep your head down and bring me back the check. In the car, he reveals a little about his plan. He told me that uh, this was his job, that he had been in uh, like the special forces. He says he's part of a big secret organization that goes around the Midwest kidnapping people and robbing them. And then it was his job to keep us for two weeks, take all of our money, and then he would have to kill us. It's near closing time when they arrive at the bank. She takes off the blindfold and walks up. A bank employee has to unlock the door to let her in. All of a sudden, I wasn't, just wasn't feeling real well, and I asked her if I could use the restroom. She's desperate for a way out, but she's worried that the kidnapper really is part of some criminal organization. Is somebody watching her? If she tries anything, will they find out? And if they find out, what will they do to Larry? As I came out and she took me back, there was a man that walked up to the drive-up window, and I'm thinking... He's part of a big organization. Are these people, you know, real customers or are they keeping watch? You just, you just don't know. But she has to try something. The guy had said he was going to kill them both anyway. So while she's sitting across from the bank clerk, she takes a chance. And so I looked through my purse and the only thing I had to write on was our church bulletin. She had a red pen on the desk and I just wrote on there that We're being held at gunpoint. Can you please help us? Um, And I slid it across the desk so I could be very inconspicuous, and I said, "Um, would you read this, please? But don't react. The teller nonchalantly slips the note into her papers and ducks out of the office. She goes right to the president, and the bank contacts the police. Then the FBI gets involved. While they're waiting, the president and the teller want to help, but they have no idea what to do. She should stay in the bank, they say. But Connie is too terrified. So the bank makes out a check for $350,000 to store Edge LLC. She grabs it and goes back to the kidnapper's car. She gets in and they leave. Morrison, Illinois. Population 4,046. It's one of those places that takes a slower pace to life. Morrison's courthouse still has an official portrait of former President Obama in its lobby. You always want to have a seat in here? John Booker is sheriff of Whiteside County. Why don't I go get those? On February 8th, the Whiteside County Law Enforcement Center got a call from police in nearby Albany. The call came in that a lady was in the bank and had gave a, a letter to the teller that her and her husband were kidnapped and they needed help. Detectives have at least one obvious clue. They get to work tracking down the name of the business on the check. Within hours, they figure out who owns Store Edge LLC. The man lives in nearby Geneseo. Aside from a few traffic violations, he has no criminal record. He works at a local gas station and owns a number of properties in the area. Police decide to focus on a car registered in his name, an old Chevrolet Caprice. Booker told me the detectives also discovered that the man attended Erie Christian Church, the same church the Van Oostens attend. In fact, the man had once been an elder there. The police station officers outside the Van Oosten home, where they find a broken basement window, a used taser cartridge, and blood on the floor. It turned out that the blood belonged to the kidnapper, who hurt himself when he broke into the Van Oosten home. This was a a full-fledged kidnapping, so we determined 
the kidnapping had taken place at their house. We now had a suspect. We are able to have a vehicle, a uh, possible mm -hmm. vehicle we were looking for. At around 4 on the morning of February 8th, the policemen stationed at the Van Oostens see a Chevy Caprice drive slowly past the Van Oosten house. White side, 324 traffic. 324. The mulling at Wilmot on Iowa, the uh, silver Caprice, one occupant. So then the, the deputy attempted to make a traffic stop on him. White side, he's taking off. The driver flees. We got in a high-speed chase with the suspect. The Whiteside County cops speed down snow-covered Moline Road. It's a long two-lane road that takes them through downtown Erie and toward the small town of Hillsdale. The driver of the Caprice clearly knows the area as he zooms down the snowy country roads. The police try to keep up. After about 20 minutes, the Caprice zips through Port Byron, a small residential village that's still asleep. He crosses a train track, then takes a sharp left and doubles back across the train track. The car heads back onto another two-lane road. It picks up speed again. Then the driver spots another car coming from the other direction. He swerves to the right, then overcorrects. This sends the Caprice careening out of control and smashing headfirst into a guardrail. The car that he was trying to avoid can't stop and smashes into the Caprice. The police surround the Caprice, guns drawn. The driver's injured, stunned, and stuck inside. We need EMS, Whiteside. The cops pull him out, handcuff him, and search the car. Inside, they find a gun, duct tape, a shovel, gloves, and plastic sheeting. The kind of items you buy when you're intending to bury someone without leaving a trace. Suspects in custody. The man behind the wheel is indeed the owner of Storage LLC. None other than my pen pal, Chad Skipper. Chad confesses immediately to kidnapping Connie and Larry Van Oosten. He takes investigators to the empty house with a secret basement. Once the police open the padlock door, there, sitting on the mattress, are Connie and Larry. Alive and shaken up, but thrilled to see their rescuers. Later, Chad's taken to the hospital to treat his injuries. When police interrogate him, he tells them everything. One interrogator asks him, Chad, how do you feel right now? Chad responds, I feel horrible, completely horrible. He sounds more than happy to unburden himself. Then he says, in the ambulance ride on the way over here, I was just saying, thank you, Jesus, that I got caught. That is over. I can finally be myself now. I feel like I've been hiding in a shell all this time, trying to hold it together. Chad Skipper pleads guilty, but it takes more than two years of legal proceedings and delays before the Van Oostens know the fate of their former captor. Finally, on April 3rd, 2019. Back to you, John. 
The Morrison man accused of kidnapping an eerie couple and holding them for ransom at one of his rental homes, we have just learned, will now spend 60 years in prison. 60 years for aggravated kidnapping with a concealed identity, home invasion with a dangerous weapon, and theft. Chad's 42 at the time, so he'll spend the rest of his life confined in a locked, windowless room against his will. Not unlike the room he designed for the Van Oostens. As it turns out, Larry and Connie had known their kidnapper all along, ever since he was a kid in their Sunday school at Erie Christian Church. Uh, growing up, Chad was a year ahead of me in school. He was a uh, valedictorian of his class. I was, we went to the same church. That's Jeff Van Oosten, Larry and Connie's son. To him, Chad was the Christian kid who had it all, smarts, charm, and faith. He was the one in Sunday school class that when you had the races to look up Bible verses or memorize, I mean, he knew them all. Chad was that model Christian. You're like, man, this guy's got it figured out. I mean, I, I, I can't even stack up to this guy. Chad Skipper grew up, got married, and had six kids, but struggled to make ends meet. Three years before the kidnapping, he tried his hand at financial investment services and pursued the Van Oostens as clients. Being nice church folks, Larry and Connie gave him a chance. They welcomed him into their home to listen to his pitch. They said no. He kept trying. They kept saying no. Not everybody said no. After his sentencing, Skipper's own parents filed a lawsuit for $444,000. They said he stole it from them when he was acting as their financial advisor. But most people turned him down. He collected a raft of rejections. By 2017, he was neck deep in debt and desperate. So the would-be wealth manager decided to provide the Van Oostens with some unsolicited financial services. If the Van Oostens wouldn't trust him, he'd just rob them instead. When I first spoke with the Van Oostens, I told them that I became interested in the case because Chad had written letters to me. They seemed quite taken aback, and I was puzzled. Hours later, I got a phone call from a very suspicious Jeff. He wanted to know why I was interested in the case. And what was this about letters from Chad? You see, while Chad was awaiting sentencing, the Van Oostens received a series of strange letters from an old Southern belle from Georgia. Howdy, you all. My name is Eloisa May. Now, I done sent you all a letter a couple months back. And I apologize, dearies, if you never received it. She wrote that she, too, had once been kidnapped by another man who happened to go to her church, who had several children, who had once asked her for money. When this kidnapper was arrested, This man, who had seemed so scary to me a few minutes before, was now crying in my kitchen, dearies. He was telling me how sorry he was. What was he going to do now? And she just happened to hear about the Van Oosten kidnapping on TV. But unlike the Van Oostens, she had forgiven her kidnapper and asked the judge to give him a lenient sentence. I have stared evil straight in the face on more than one occasion, sugar childs. Chad is not evil. He did evil things, but he is not evil. Connie read the letters with great concern for Eloisa May. But Larry and Jeff were immediately suspicious. They turned them over to the police. 
an investigation found that the letter had originated in the jail itself. There was no Eloisa May. Chad made up the name and wrote the letters. And when they raided Chad's cell, they found a detailed escape plan he was planning to mail out to a former prison mate. He wrote, The only way I can fight back and prove my innocence is if I'm not in jail. So I need to get out of jail and I either need to die or better yet, make everyone think I'm dead. Those letters probably didn't endear him to the judge. At Chad's sentencing, the judge described him as, quote, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So when I called and mentioned letters from Chad... And when I hear that, well, we've received letters from Chad, too. We didn't know it was Chad, but um, he's writing letters to everybody. Jeff said even though Chad's in prison, he's worried about what Chad will come up with next. You're constantly on edge, like, oh, what's he up to now? You know, when... Obviously, he had the big plan of kidnapping my parents. And An escape then, plan. And then an escape plan. And then he had these letters was the next part of his plans. To Jeff, the sentence wasn't too strict. He's not going to stop. So, no, 60 years isn't enough. Chad Skipper was interviewed by police detectives after his arrest. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before you ask, any, before you ask you any questions and to have them with you during questioning. Do you understand that? Okay. He's wearing a black and white striped inmate outfit. His right arm's in a cast. He's about six foot two, looks sort of athletic. His salt and pepper hair is receding, and he has a short beard. Blue eyes. He was soft spoken. You can barely hear him on this recording. I worked at a gas station before that. I was a manager. He's telling the officer about losing his job at the gas station. Then he tried out financial services. He said that when that didn't work, he fell into depression. Watching it later, I can't tell if he's so subdued because of the punctured lung he suffered from the car crash or because the jig was up. At one point, Chad looks down and shakes his head as if he's disappointed in himself. Then he tries to explain himself to the investigators. He claims he didn't want to do it, had talked himself out of it, but he needed money so badly. He said it didn't feel like he was doing it. Six years later, life in Erie has moved on. Chad's wife remarried. Someone bought the house and tore down the basement dungeon. The locals still talk about that crazy day, and everyone here knows the families. But even they are quick to change the subject, because this is usually where crime stories end. But for the victims of crime, the pain often continues long after the story ends. Larry and Connie are still living with the effects. The damage is done. It's not, it's not three days. You can't look at it as three days. It's a living hell for them. My mom cannot go places. She, she has a hard time going to watch her kids play sports and, and can't be, you know, doesn't feel comfortable in crowds, doesn't, you know, it's a hell for him. I mean, he ruined their lives. He ruined their retirement. If your school valedictorian 
your former church elder, your model Christian hoodwinked you in the worst way, how do you trust anyone? That's part of the struggle. Every Christian church is a small church in a small town. Chad's family, his parents and wife and kids, sat in the same pews every Sunday. The Van Oostens had their pew too. Things got super awkward the Sunday after the kidnapping. Their pastor started a new sermon series, Walking with God When Life Goes Sideways. He came up with that title before the kidnapping. Jeff Van Oosten's wife, Terry, said that if just seeing the parents of the person who caused you pain makes you relive the trauma, how do you feel normal again? Here's Terry. You don't want to see people and get a pit in your stomach. Like, why do you have to do that to yourself? You don't. The Van Oosten clan made the difficult decision to leave the church. The only church they'd known for the last 40 years. So we go to church in Provincetown now, and we've been there for the last, uh, what, a couple of years. Both families needed a time to heal from this, and it just, it just didn't seem like, like we could um, move forward and be able to focus on, on God and, and the worship. Terry said Chad is a lifetime manipulator. And again, I'm not saying <laughs> God doesn't change people, and you know, I just think he has tricked people for a long time and I don't think he's done. So, knowing what you know now, would you have written back to Chad after his first letter? I think I still would have. I feel, yeah, I would have. I, I feel like everybody... Even if they are bad and have a past, they're still human, and they still need connection and a friend. Juliana and I talked for a long time about this. Chad struck me as just such a manipulator. I can't imagine a relationship with someone when I suspect every word out of his mouth is a lie, including and and the. Juliana, however, was quite a bit more charitable. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I feel like... Everybody's a little bit of a manipulator in their own way, right? Everyone has a dark side to them. And you don't really know when you're talking to anyone whether they're giving you, like, the honest-to-goodness truth. I see the letters, and the letters tell me one thing, but then I learn about his crime, and that's like another layer of him that I didn't know. We also talked about the need for the grace of Christ. Juliana said that if people think you can just tie all this up in a bow and move on, Everyone's a believer, and they've prayed for forgiveness, and everyone's forgiven everyone. Well, I think that's still a work in progress. And, but I think, I think the Avenustans want to tell the story because it's not because they want to highlight that, they're, that they, there are people they don't get along with, but that, that there can be healing, that, that, that bad things happen to church people too. The last time Juliana heard from Chad, he was telling her about a new job he wanted in the prison kitchen. He'd also get a better cell. I did tell him while I was working on the story that I was traveling to Erie, his hometown, and, and if he wanted to talk to me about it, if there were any friends that I could connect with, and if he had 
uh, you know, if he wanted to fess up and tell me more about his story and his side of it. And he ghosted me. He never, never wrote back. I had a friend named Ramblin' Bob Who used to steal, gamble, and rob He thought he was the smartest guy in town But I found out last Monday That Bob got locked up Sunday They've got him in the jailhouse way downtown He's in the jailhouse now He's in the jailhouse now I told him once or twice to quit playing cards and shooting dice. He's in the jailhouse now. This episode was reported and written by Juliana Chan Erickson and produced by the creative team at World Radio. Thanks to Gail Reinhardt for her portrayal of Eloisa May. Please do follow, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're so inclined, share with some friends. It really makes a big difference in helping other people find our show. Next week on Double Take. An embodied internet where you're in the experience, not just looking at it. And we call this the metaverse. And for them, it's the whole space is, is a last resort. My boundary is showing up around me. Ooh, now it's stuck. When in VR, your senses are immersed in a real-time feedback loop. Can you just step to one side, dear? Thank you. (laughs) It's about taking on a form and becoming it. Enough to feel like this isn't just an illusion, that this is another reality. Thanks for listening. I'm Les Sillers, and we'll see you next time.